Well, I would ask you if you would again to turn in God's Word now to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. And once a month, we have a time uh, for kids grades six and below. Six and below, um, over in our building across the driveway, uh, for them to share around God's Word and song and interaction. They're welcome to remain in here, uh, but we also do this once a month as an opportunity. So for you guys and girls and those who are helping, uh, if you want to go ahead and be dismissed, please do so. And uh, may it be a rich and a fruitful time. And for the rest of us, we're in Genesis 50 at the very end of the chapter. And it was actually on January 20th of 2020 that we began our journey through the book of Genesis. Some of you were present then, many of you were not, and for any of you who are brand new, over the last few years we've been moving through this book. We've taken a number of breaks here and there, uh, but this morning we come to the conclusion of our study, for now anyway, in the book of Genesis. Of course, it was a little more than three years ago when I began. It's a little more than 60 sermons ago. And again, we've taken many breaks, but now we come to the end. And this is a foundational book in all of Scripture. So we're going to look at this last passage, verses 22 to 26. So let's hear God's word, and then I'll lead us in prayer after I read our passage. So Genesis 50, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Micar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer again as we seek his help. Our mighty God and Father, and our shepherd and our redeemer, would you please visit us and help us now as we sit again under your holy word. You're the true and living God. You have made yourself known that we might know you, that we might have eternal life in such knowledge of you through faith. We know that you would have us to walk by faith in the riches of your good and saving blessings. And so please open our eyes now and stir our hearts afresh to see and to believe and to receive all that you have given in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name, amen and amen. Well, so ends the book of Genesis. It began with God creating and giving the breath of life to Adam in the garden. And it ends with Joseph dead in a coffin in Egypt. 
In my first sermon from Genesis many months ago, I'm sure all of you remember that well, I made the point that everything that we find in the story of Genesis is not primarily historical in nature or scientific or biographical in nature. Those elements are present, but that's not the primary point. No, everything that God has revealed in Genesis is ultimately theological, meaning that it is all about Him, who He is, and what it means to have life in Him through faith. In other words, all of the historical narrative that God has given in Genesis, all of these true stories that are filled with intriguing people and with nail-biting plots and subplots, all of this is God's vehicle, if you will, for transporting theology. In other words, the stories are the means of God imparting the knowledge of Him. And not just to our minds, but ultimately to our hearts, to our souls, that He might change us and that we might know Him. And so all of these things that we find in Genesis, all these stories are skillfully woven together by God who is the master author as part of His one grand overarching story of all of Scripture, the story of His loving salvation in Jesus Christ. Salvation for hopeless, helpless, undeserving sinners like us. And God's call in Genesis, really through all of the Scripture, is to believe in Him, to hope in God. We could say that's the big idea not only of Genesis but of all of Scripture that we would hope in God. Now because the focus of Genesis is theological and therefore life-giving, as we finish this chapter 50, I want to highlight some of the main theological themes that we find throughout the book. These are not difficult to see and they're not difficult to understand. They are difficult to to embrace fully by faith and to live by. But I want to highlight these themes. And these themes begin in Genesis. Some of them very small, some of them very faintly. But they are themes that then reverberate throughout the Bible to the very end of the book of Revelation. And so they echo with escalating intensity over the vast expanse of Scripture. And they really get brighter and brighter like the dawn of a new day. They are themes that come to their fullest radiance when the sunrise of Jesus Christ, if you will, breaks over the horizon of the New Testament. We see these themes in their beginnings in the book of Genesis. And so they're, they're like rich threads tightly woven together in God's beautiful garment of salvation. Now, I will tell you that people differ on the number of big themes that we could identify. Uh, but I think since seven is the perfect number, even though it's not inspired per se, Uh, But it seems like a good number to go with. So what I want to do is point out seven big theological themes that we find in Genesis. That's going to be our focus this morning. And tracing through these themes is going to lead us all the way back to our text at the end of chapter 50, 
where we'll close out our time together today. So we're going to see these themes. They're going to kind of merge together as we come back to chapter 50 near the end of our time together this morning. So that's what we want to do. Look at these seven big theological themes that we find throughout Genesis. So here's big theological theme number one. Triune God. Triune God. God himself is the, in his triune mystery, in his triune glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the biggest theme. He's the biggest reality of all. And God is the first and the preeminent subject, not only of Genesis, of course, but of the entire Bible. And he reveals himself to be the uncreated, eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient creator of everything. And so Genesis 1, verse 1, begins by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, God's triune reality is never explicitly mentioned in the book of Genesis. However, There are hints and faint statements that come into greater focus in the rest of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, regarding God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But even in what I just read there in verse 2, the Spirit of God is identified. There is debate about exactly how Spirit there should be understood, but it is present nonetheless. And then if you look down in chapter 1, near the end in verse 26, as God prepares to create man and woman, we hear this, and notice the plural pronouns. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now once again, I will tell you there is debate here also about the meaning and the significance of these plural pronouns. But it could be a veiled reference to the Trinity and, the and, and, and His existence, especially if you think about this, the loving oneness that is to be shared between man and woman as husband and wife, uh, that really is uh, an expression of what it means to be made in God's image and, image and reflecting to an extent the loving oneness that exists within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it is possible that that is a veiled reference to his triune reality. And beyond this, throughout the book of Genesis, there's a number of times that we learn of appearances of one identified as the angel of the Lord. And there is good reason to believe that those are actually pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I will say, while God's triune reality is veiled in Genesis, His eternal and His transcendent and His infinite glory is not. Among God's many attributes, He shows Himself throughout Genesis to be holy, to be righteous, to be sovereign and good and just and wise and merciful and gracious and patient and omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and also unchanging. And really from Genesis 1 verse 1 on, we see God's enduring love. We see it displayed in His mighty works of creation 
and of redemption and of providence. God ruling over and orchestrating everything and everyone for His loving, sovereign purposes. And so God Himself is really the theme of all themes in all of His infinite glory. Well, that's the first big theological theme we see. The second flows from that, and I would call it this, very good creation. Uh, The second big theological theme is very good creation. And so with magnificent perfection and beauty, both with what God did and then how it is is described in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, the very goodness of God's creation is plainly and strongly emphasized. And so we hear this refrain, it's repeated six times in chapter 1 as the days of creation unfold. Namely, it starts in verse 3, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good, 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 and God saw that it was good. good. If you read through the whole chapter, you'll hear that again and again. And then, on the sixth day, when God finished His creative work by making man and woman in His image, which is then described in more detail in chapter 2, But near the end of chapter 1, in verse 31, at the end of that sixth day, this is really the crescendo where we hear the statement, and God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Can you imagine God's very good creation without sin? Can you imagine what that must have been like? The uncorrupted fullness of God's good blessing. Unstained, uninhibited intimacy with God. The perfection of life and of harmony and of beauty and fruitfulness and abundance and freedom and joy and delight and happiness and goodness. The total absence of evil. No sin. No guilt. No shame. No pain, no regrets, no sadness, no despair, no sickness, no hatred, no lying, no fighting, no fear, and no loneliness, and no death. Can you imagine that? So do you see in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis how this vision of this reality of the very goodness of creation and and God's beautiful creation lays out before sin destroyed paradise. Now, the theme of God's very good creation, which is really the overflow of His Trinitarian love and goodness, the theme of His very good creation permeates all of Scripture. And the hope of the full restoration of what was lost through sin, that hope blossoms when Christ returns and brings in the new heaven and the new earth. So hear how this is spoken of in Revelation chapter 21. And I'll read just verse 1 and then a little bit down. Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And then down in verse 4 we read uh, that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Well, of course, there's a lot that goes on between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation chapter 21. But we hear and we have this vision there in Revelation of of God's very good new creation without sin, eternally restored in Christ. And so what a theme. What a theme. And this lays out for us as as a big theological theme that is introduced in Genesis. Well, let's go back to Genesis and see big, three, big theme number three. Big theme number three. Here it is, dependent mankind. Dependent mankind. The unique, distinct, crowning jewel of God's creation was mankind and is mankind. Male and female fashioned by God. And so Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then over in chapter 2 we're told in verse 7 that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And it's a bit later in chapter 2 that we're told more of the details of how God then made woman out of the man to be a helper fit for him. And what all of this reveals, beloved, is that God created mankind to be dependent upon him in every way. Our lives are completely dependent upon God, beginning with the breath that he gives us to breathe and to live. We're dependent upon God. Our gender is designed and dependent upon God. He determines our gender as male or female. Our identity and our purpose are dependent upon God. He made us in His image. He made us to know and to love and to worship Him and to fulfill the work that He's given us to do in His creation. We're dependent upon Him. We are not independent creatures. We are not self-sufficient. We're not free to determine our own life, gender, identity, and purpose. We are fully, undeniably, and inescapably dependent beings on the God of the universe. And because mankind is dependent, that means we are also accountable. We're accountable to God. He is our loving, authoritative creator. He's the one who defines what is good in harmony with his own righteous goodness. And so when we get to Genesis 3, it tells us that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good command, what they were doing was defining good for themselves. They were defining and eating their own false idea of good rather than trusting and submitting to God's true good. And so as a result, they became guilty. They became ashamed. And they became alienated from the God to whom they were accountable. 
And we're told there in chapter 3 that because of their guilt and shame, they tried in vain to hide from God. They tried to cover their own guilt and shame with their own futile efforts. And their sin then brought God's curse of death, not only on themselves, but on all humanity. You see, sin corrupted Adam and Eve's nature. And that sinful nature, that natural bent to rebel against God and to self-define good for ourselves has been passed on to all of Adam and Eve's offspring, which of course includes you and me. We all have that sinful nature, that bent to rebel against God and define good on our own terms. So throughout Genesis, that's what we see unfolding, this theme of dependent, accountable, sinful mankind. And as the narrative of Genesis unfolds and moves along, each new person and generation is unable to save themselves from their sin and from the death that sin produces. And so that's what we see. It's just a giant mess that we've made for ourselves because of sin. And death is at the, at the root or at the, at, the, at the bottom of that mess. Well, interwoven with these other big themes, we see the triune God, we see His very good creation, we see dependent mankind. The fourth big theological theme is blessing and curse. Blessing and curse. Genesis makes clear that God is the sovereign giver of His blessing or of His curse. So back to chapter 1, we're told in verse 22 that God blessed the water and the air creatures so that they would be fruitful and multiply. And then in verse 28 of chapter 1, God likewise blessed the man and woman in the Garden of Eden in order that they would be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over God's creation. We're told in chapter 2 verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day and He made it holy as the day that He rested, that He was finished with His creative work. And to speak of God's blessing then is literally the giving of His smile. The giving of His smile, His favor, so that what He blesses experiences fruitfulness and fulfillment and happiness and life. God's curse, in stark and tragic contrast, is the giving of His frown. It's the giving of His displeasure. So that what he curses experiences barrenness and futility and ultimately death. Now God himself warned of his curse in chapter 2 to the man that he had created. He says in verses 16 and 17 to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the essence of the consequence of the curse, is death. Well then, of course, in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled, they immediately knew God's curse, and they died spiritually immediately in being alienated from Him. And eventually, of course, they would physically die. 
I'm not going to read all of the expression of God's curse there in chapter 3 following their sin, but a portion of it in verses 17 to 19, listen how God's curse to Adam expresses this futility and ultimately death. So he says in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's his curse. Do you see then how these themes or this theme of blessing and curse, how it then develops and unfolds throughout Genesis? As I've mentioned, chapters 1 and 2 show us the beauty of God's blessing on His very good creation. But all of it is shattered and crushed with mankind's sin and God's curse in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4 through 11... It shows us nothing really but the progressive, intensifying division, destruction, and death that takes place because of mankind's sin and of God's curse. If you read it all in one sitting, it's just overwhelming to see how that unfolds and intensifies. And so then what it means is at the beginning of chapter 12... After we go through all of that mess, when God literally, out of the blue, sovereignly and graciously calls this man named Abram, who he would eventually rename Abraham, when he does this and and we hear these promises of God's global blessings through Abraham, it's absolutely shocking because everything has been under his curse, but now God is speaking of blessing. And so God promises, listen to what he says in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. And he's speaking to Abram. He says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this is amazing. And it's very intriguing too that while God's curse is evident and present and active, the dominating reality throughout Genesis is His intent, His desire, His his passionate, relentless commitment to bring the blessing of salvation to undeserving sinners. And so it all displays His glory and His steadfast love and His intent to bless even in the midst of curse. Now we have to recognize and and we have to think about the impact of this theme of blessing and curse because it forces a question, it forces a question for every single one of us. And the question is this, are you living under God's blessing or are you living under His curse? It's one or the other for every single one of us. Are we living under His blessing or are we living under his curse. I'm going to come back to that question in a little while, but keep that in your mind for now. We're going to move on to the fifth big theological theme. And you see, you begin to see hopefully how these themes all intertwine with one another. But this is the theme of covenant promises. The theme of covenant promises. 
And so the promises that God makes in Genesis chapter 12, which I just read a portion of that in verses 2 and 3, uh, over time as the story moves along, these develop into formalized covenant promises that God himself takes responsibility to fulfill. And these covenant promises really are the backbone of the storyline, not only of Genesis, but of all of Scripture. And again, this is the story of God bringing the blessing of salvation to undeserving sinners. And these covenant promises are at the, at the backbone of all of this. Now the beginnings of these promises for blessing, they really go back to God's creation design with Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, God's intent was to bless. And even after their fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, even as God pronounces His curse, He gives a hint of promise when He says to the serpent in verse 15 of chapter 3 that offspring from the woman is eventually going to be victorious over offspring from the serpent. This is the first veiled reference of this promise that comes into full focus in chapter 12, continues to emerge and develop from that point on. But in God's love and His design and in His power, these, pro- these promises then deepen and they expand through the whole narrative of Genesis. As I mentioned, they're really the backbone of the story. And so then after a global flood of judgment is poured out by God, as we read about that in chapters 6 through 9, God promises Noah, whom he saved along with Noah's family, God promised that he would never again destroy the earth by a flood. And then he promises uh, this blessing that is spoken to Abraham in chapter 12, And these promises are then preserved and passed on through Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob and Jacob's sons Joseph and particularly Jacob's son Judah. And we learn about that in chapter 49 as Jacob blesses his sons. And we understand also then that all of God's covenant promises culminate in Jesus Christ who came from the line of Judah, ultimately from the loins of Abraham. Now what's significant in Genesis uh, about these covenant promises is that as they begin to develop through Genesis, what we see is that God is the one keeping these promises even when it looks humanly impossible for that to happen. He's the one who's keeping the promises because he's sovereign and he's God. And so the birth of Abraham's son Isaac is a miracle because Abraham and his wife Sarah are well beyond childbearing years. But God does the impossible with the birth of Isaac. And then the preservation of God's promises with Jacob is absolutely miraculous. And God's good and sovereign power then to fulfill His promises despite human sin and impossibility and even in the midst of human sin and impossibilities, all of that is summarized in the experience of Joseph and his once wicked and hateful brothers. And we looked at this in detail last week as Joseph says to them in verse 20 of chapter 50, You meant evil against me, but God 
meant it for good. Because God keeps His promises. You see, beloved, God is always faithful. And His promises are always to be trusted and obeyed. And even in our text of chapter 50, there at the end, Joseph is preparing to die. And we see how he is trusting God to faithfully fulfill his promises. That's what's undergirding what Joseph directs before he dies. And so look what it, how it's said in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 50. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And he'll bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What Joseph is saying to his brothers is, guys, we're living and dying by this promise. And so you need to take sure, make sure that my bones come up from here because God is going to visit you and that they're taken from here, from Egypt, to the land of Canaan. And so Joseph lived and died with faith in God's promises. He hoped in God. And again, that's the ringing, reverberating call of this book and all of Scripture, friends. Hope in God. Hope in God. He makes promises and He keeps those promises. He's faithful. Well, two more themes for us to see. Big theological theme number six. Here it is. Kingdom family. Kingdom family. And the theme of God's kingdom with everyone in his kingdom being part of his family. This theme is thick and rich in Genesis. And so even back to creation again, the display of God's very good creation in chapters 1 and 2, it expresses kingdom language and kingdom imagery. God, the eternal, sovereign, supreme king, creating his kingdom and creating man and woman in his image to share familial intimacy with him. And part of what this means, according to what uh, verses 26 to 28 of chapter 1 say, is that mankind is to resemble and to represent God on the earth by exercising dominion. That's kingdom language. By exercising dominion over all God created. So God thus made mankind to be his vice regents in the godly care of his kingdom. Now of course mankind's sin in Genesis 3 shattered this vision of kingdom family. And it gave place to the influence and the impact of Satan's kingdom of darkness and division and death. But you see, at the heart of the triune God's covenant promise for blessing, His promise to bless undeserving sinners with salvation is to yet build and gather a kingdom family of those that He saves to be His people and that He would be our God. It's all about His kingdom family. And so this is why then God's covenant promises to Abraham uh, that encompass Abraham's family uh, with, his, with God's design to then bless all the families of the earth through this chosen family. And this is also why the advancement of these promises through Abraham and his offspring at times involve promises of a 
of kings and of a kingdom. We, we hear of that in Genesis 17, for instance, and also in Genesis 49, when Jacob is pronouncing a blessing and prophecies upon his sons. He speaks of Judah as one from whom the scepter will never depart. And so the kingdom is, is central within all of this. And such kingdom family realities continue to develop through the kingdom of Israel and her kings, and particularly King David. And so this is also why then, by the time we get to the New Testament and the coming of Jesus Christ in His first coming, Jesus announces at the beginning of His ministry, as it's recorded in the Gospel of Mark, verse 15, He says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus fulfilled all the kingdom family expectations that God first promises in Genesis. And now that Jesus has come, He's been crucified, He's risen, He's exalted, He's at the right hand of the Father, and He is coming again. And He's identified as what? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19.16 speaks of Him in that way. And when He returns, when He visits us again, He will bring just and eternal judgment on all of His enemies. And He'll bring eternal salvation for His kingdom family. And so we hear that kingdom language at the beginning of Revelation chapter 22, which we read earlier. But also in chapter 21, in those opening verses, I read a portion of that earlier, but let me read verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 21. And again, hear this kingdom family language in the new heaven and the new earth. We read there verse 2 of Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne Thrones exist in kingdoms, right? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. And again, that's the same language, the same imagery that's presented near the beginning of chapter 22 in speaking of the new hope or the new heaven and the new earth. Kingdom family, God's eternal kingdom family. You see what hope this is for believers? What living hope, what real hope, why the call is continually hope in God, hope in God. So what big theological themes are introduced in the book of Genesis that that reverberate throughout all of Scripture? The triune God, His very good creation, dependent mankind, God's blessing and curse, His covenant promises, and His kingdom family. Well, as I alluded to earlier, these themes force questions for every one of us. Are we living under God's blessing or under His curse? Are we living inside or outside of God's covenant promises? Are we living as members of God's kingdom family or as members of Satan's kingdom of darkness? What is it, we might ask then, that determines where we land with these questions? What's what's the determining factor of where we land with these questions? Well, the answer to that question is found in the seventh and final big theme that we see in Genesis, and it's this, saving 
faith. Saving faith. Beloved, we can say that the goal of God through all that He's revealed in Genesis, through these 50 chapters of true historical narrative, through all these big, grand theological themes that He reveals, God's goal for us in all of this is that we would be people of faith. That we would be people who trust Him. And in trusting Him, we know Him. And we know His blessing. And we know His purposes. And we walk with Him. People of faith. People who put our full reliance and trust and confidence in this promise-making, promise-keeping God who saves. That we would be people who hope in God. Again, this is the resounding call of God through Genesis and all of Scripture. Hope in Him. Know Him, trust Him, obey Him, worship Him. And so from the very beginning of Genesis, we see that God's goal is to stir up and to strengthen faith in Him. For instance, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, which catalogs and chronicles a lot of examples of faith in the Old Testament. Listen to how Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3 declares this regarding God's intent, even with what we know of how He created everything. So Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3 says, Now faith, here's faith, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation by faith, We understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. How do we understand that? Because that's what Genesis 1 and 2 says. And so by faith we receive that. And so that's why we have Genesis 1 and 2 to stir up our faith. It's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 11, there are 40 verses in that chapter. The first 22 verses, more than half of the chapter are about the activities of faith in the book of Genesis. So you think the book of Genesis is important? Absolutely. Because it holds before us the activities of faith. And so Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about the faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch, the faith of Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And what you find with every single one of those people is that they were unrighteous, undeserving sinners who nonetheless, by God's grace, had saving faith. And again, that's part of what Genesis holds before us. These very imperfect, very sinful, very frail, very weak people who nonetheless, by God's grace, trust Him and are growing in their trust of Him. And so this means that even as we see Adam and Eve's rebellion in chapter 3, we're to ultimately understand that as an act of unbelief. Again, they did not believe in God's goodness and in His good command. So they foolishly defined good for themselves and they disobeyed God. And friends, that what, that's what sin is, is fundamentally unbelief. But God shows Himself again and again and again in Genesis to be merciful, gracious, and full of steadfast love to undeserving sinners who trust Him. One strong example, I've already mentioned him, is Abraham. And Abraham gets a lot of airtime 
Not only in Genesis and not only in Hebrews chapter 11, but in many other places in the New Testament as well. He gets a lot of airtime as an example of this faith. And this is very explicit in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 when we hear this statement. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He had faith in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Why did that matter for Abraham? He was unrighteous. He deserved God's wrath. He deserved God's curse. He deserved it all. But through faith, God counts him as righteous. Beloved, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That unrighteous, undeserving sinners like Abraham, are counted as righteous in God's eyes. Forgiven, saved, reconciled, brought into the fullness of His blessing, delivered forever from His curse. Counted righteous, not through any merit or work of our own, but only through faith in what God and in who God has provided. You see, friends, the only way To know God's blessing rather than His curse. The only way to benefit from all of His covenant promises. The only way to belong to His kingdom rather than the kingdom of darkness is through saving faith in God's provision, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that we find in Genesis is pointing us ultimately to God's provision of His blessing in Jesus Christ. So listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9 regarding this saving faith, even as it's exemplified in Abraham. Galatians 3, verses 7 and 9 says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify What justify means is to declare righteous. So Paul says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that God would declare righteous the Gentiles by faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is God's provision of how we come into His blessing and out from under His curse, into His kingdom and out from the kingdom of darkness, into the fullness of all of His covenant promises and out from our own ideas of what is good. It's by faith in His provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, do you have this saving faith in Christ Do you have saving faith in God and His Word? Are you fully trusting and relying upon God's full provision in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe what Jesus said again? Remember Mark 1 verse 15. Repent repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Trust Him. Rely on Him. Turn from everything else you would rely on except Him. Most fundamentally, don't trust yourself and your own ideas. Trust God. Trust Christ. Well, this big theme of saving faith 
woven together within all the other big themes that we've looked at, it's what leads us right back to our passage at the end of Genesis 50. And this is what we'll close out our time with. And so like his father Jacob before him, Joseph exemplified living and dying with faith in God's promises. And so you see there verses 22 and 23 tell us that Joseph spent the rest of his 110 years in Egypt. And God blessed him in letting him see his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. That's why that little note is made there. It's, it's, It's indicative of the fact that God had blessed him. And then in verses 24 and 25, dying Joseph gives directions concerning his bones. You see, Joseph knew because God had told Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God had told Abraham that 400 years of slavery in Egypt was coming for his family, for the family of Israel. And Joseph knew this. And Joseph also knew that at that same time in Genesis 15, God had promised that that time of slavery, those 400 years, would be followed by a great exodus when God would bring his people out of Egypt and bring them back to the promised land. And so with what Joseph is doing in chapter 50 of Genesis, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 22 says, By faith... Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and he gave directions concerning his bones. You see, it's all of faith. Well, then, of course, Joseph dies. We're told they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You think, what a way to end the book. But it leaves us on the edge of our seats in a sense, doesn't it? It makes us ask and wonder, what's going to happen next? What's going to come of all of this? What's going to come of God's promises? And how's this all going to play out? Well, God in His wisdom and His grace and His love, He gives us 66 more books to reveal what's going to happen after Joseph is dead in a coffin in Egypt. But for now, what I want you to see is how these big theological themes in Genesis, how they really all coalesce together with what Joseph says in verses 24 and 25. The future hope, assurance, and confidence of God fulfilling all of His covenant promises for blessing to undeserving sinners, that future hope is twice verbalized by Joseph when he says, but God will visit you. And then he says again, God will surely visit you. And these words, this promise, point forward not only to God visiting when He appears to Moses and to deliver His people out of Egypt, which is what we read about in the book of Exodus, the very next book, but it points forward ultimately to the visitation of God in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why this visitation is spoken of by Zechariah in the passage that Tim read at the very beginning of our service from Luke chapter 1, Luke records that Zechariah is speaking of this visitation using the very same language that Joseph used in Genesis 50. So again, in Luke chapter 1, we read this, verse 68. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That includes Genesis. That we should be saved, he says, verse 71, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You see what Zechariah is saying? Zechariah was the father, by the way, of John the Baptist. But he knew that John the Baptist, Baptist was coming to prepare the way for the visitation of the promised Messiah, Jesus. So he says, this is that visitation. Yes, God visited his people in the Exodus and that great deliverance. But there was an infinitely greater deliverance coming through Jesus. Deliverance from sin. Do you see how all of this is designed for us to hope in God and hope in Jesus Christ so that we would walk in His blessing? And you see, this sense of visitation that both Joseph and Zechariah spoke of, it, it has to do with, as one scholar says, divine intervention for the sake of blessing or cursing. Divine intervention for the sake of blessing or cursing. Indeed, think about it. When God visited for the exodus through Moses, He blessed His people with deliverance. But what happened to the Egyptians? They were cursed and destroyed with His judgment. And when God visited with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, He accomplished through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus salvation, blessings for all who would trust Him. But God's curse, you see, still remains on anyone who continues in unbelief and rebellion outside of Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, and here's the wonderful hope, beloved. The Lord Jesus who has visited and accomplished redemption and has now returned to heaven. We're promised that He will visit yet again. He's coming again. And that's what we heard in Revelation chapter 22. And this marks the entire framework of the hope that we're to believe and to live by. So Jesus says in verse 7 of chapter 20, hold, 22, Behold, I am coming soon. I'm going to visit. I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then again down in verses 12 and 13, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then verse 17 of chapter 22, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And then in verse 20, he who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming soon. You hear the echo of, Jesus, of Joseph saying in Genesis 50, Surely God will visit you again. Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And so we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, may your purposes in the things you've been pleased to speak to us about now be realized in, in each one's life. Lord, that we might live and know your blessing through faith in the Lord Jesus. 
And your call to us again and again, whom you have brought to saving faith, is to, to keep believing, keep trusting, keep persevering. Even amid griefs and sorrow and hardship and trials and difficulty and pain and suffering, to keep believing, knowing that you're working everything together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that you've set before us a real, living, blessed, eternal hope. Father, I pray that everyone hearing this would know your blessing through faith in Jesus. If there are any who are yet in their sins, under your curse, outside of your kingdom, separated from your covenant promises, oh God, may today, this moment, be the day of salvation for them. Where they would call upon you when they would drink the living water of your grace and mercy in Christ, when they would be clothed with the robe of righteousness in Jesus, to know forgiveness, to know hope, to know life in you. Lord, you're the author of salvation, even as you're the author of everything. May you do that work for your glory. We thank you and praise you in your great and mighty name. Amen and amen. Amen.